This is a Rooster Teeth production. Hello, everyone. Welcome to a special supplementary edition of Black Box Down. As always, it is Gus and Chris. Hello, Chris. Hello. Plus bonus guests today, question mark? Yes. I was supposed to intro. We have bonus guests, John <laughs> and Pacific from the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. Hey, hey guys. guys. Hello. Welcome. So we wanted to get uh, John and Pacific on here because we had an idea. We've done something like this before, but we wanted to revisit this idea and talk about plane crashes in movies and how planes are portrayed in movies. And if they're realistic or not. <laughs> yes. We know normally there's a lot of like, you know, you exaggerate things, you make, you, you make things look extra nice for, the, for camera and it doesn't always mean things are accurate. So we wanted to really like kind of dig into that being the uh, obsessive compulsive nerd that I am wanting to try to find as many things as I could uh, wrong about a movie. Absolutely. For people who may not be familiar with Bloody Disgusting Network, what do you what do you work on? So Pacific and I work on a show specifically called SCP Archives. SCP stands for Secure, Contain, Protect. Uh, the SCP, it. yep, so, yay! I finally got it. <laughs> uh, SCP is kind of a subculture. It, it's almost like a subreddit before subreddits existed. The SCP organization. There are there have been a few shows, I think, even on the Sci Fi Channel, that are somewhat similar to it, where you take kind of, you create a mythos around ideas like SCP-0582 you know, or whatever. And it's an item, it's an animal, it's a person, it's some sort of an unexplained event. The SCP organization has been tasked to control it and basically protect humanity against itself and the, the anomalies that exist. Couldn't have said it better myself. That's why I'm the host. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I do all the behind the scenes work, you know, add the pretty sound effects and whatnot. Uh, and aside from that, John also does Creepy, which is horror stories, um, mostly single narrator stuff with amazing sound effects and uh, some beautiful music as well. And uh, both those shows come out every single week. And people can get those wherever they listen to podcasts. Yep. Apple, Spotify, uh, Google Play, you know, wh wherever it is. Yeah. It's very, like really just good like radio plays if this was on the radio, but it's not. Really. But yeah, like, we're just, like yeah. listening <laughs> to a full story and like an immersive experience. Yeah. Bring back the old like 50s Orson Welles style yeah. radio plays. For you kids out there that aren't familiar with what radios are. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, yeah um, you know, some of your fans and followers may know uh, Chris and Blaine were actually on a uh, special episode we did in March. And we'll actually have a new special episode uh, coming pretty soon with uh, Chris and Gus. Yeah. Mm, nice. It's going to be plane themed, right? It is going to be plane themed. Uh, yeah. It's a pretty fun story. I think you guys will like it a lot. Awesome. I like planes. <laughs> yep. I'm like that weird kid who says he likes turtles, but that's me, but with planes. <laughs> <laughs> Chris, did you already introduce the, the movies we have this week? No, I teased it. I said we got three good ones. We do have three oh, good the, whoa, ones. Whoa, whoa, whoa. We have three movies. Okay, we got three good movie <laughs> crashes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we have three good movie crashes. What did you guys bring? Because I know what I brought. So we brought 1997's The Edge because I want a Pacific to watch a movie from before he was born. Indeed. Oh, uh, you weren't born yet in 1997? I was born July 21st, 1997. So I just missed this uh, as well as our other two wonderful movies. <laughs> wow. Um, you know, it's nice to see a, a younger Anthony Hopkins, right? Like. A, younger I, 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 <laughs> a slightly younger Anthony Hopkins. My back uh, I, is hurting. <laughs> <laughs> my sciatica. Oh, oh boy. My, such a flare up. And then I brought 
Con Air, the ending scene of Con Air with Nicolas Cage, where the plane full of convicts crashes onto the Vegas Strip. Oh, God. <laughs> Ooh. Yeah, that's uh, Mike, some of Michael Bay's finest work. Mm-hmm. And uh, I brought the uh, July 1990 action movie Die Hard 2, Die Harder. And <laughs> yes. <laughs> believe it or not, I found a connection between Die Hard 2 and Con Air. Oh. We'll have to get to that a little later. Well, then, do, do, what do you, what, do you want to start with Con Air? Yeah, let's start with Con Air. Yeah, let's do it. Okay, well, um, it's a movie where Nicolas Cage is a kind of wrongfully convicted. He got convicted for de- defending himself in a bar fight mm-hmm. because he was so well-trained. He was a lethal weapon. <laughs> it's, it's happened to all of us. <laughs> the judge ruled that him defending himself wasn't, was, use, it was the same as using a deadly weapon because he was that strong. But they, uh, this plane full of convicts gets taken over and then uh, they end up crashing it on the Vegas Strip in a big, exciting ending. So if I recall properly, he was on his way to be released, right? Yes. Yeah, so he was like, this is it. He served his time. But the other convicts are still serving time and they try to take over the plane so that they can escape. But he mm-hmm. just like, he doesn't want anything to happen because he's trying to go home. Yeah, he just wants to see his family. Right. I looked it up the plane that they're flying. It's a, a Fairchild C-123 provider. It's like an old military plane that was used for transporting people and cargo and all sorts of stuff. Yay, one checkbox for accuracy. Yeah. <laughs> if the plane actually existed. It wasn't used for transporting the actual Con Air, which is a real thing. Interesting. There is a real Con Air. It was a new, it was a new thing whenever uh, the screenwriter apparently like went on, what, what do you call those? A, a ride-along? He went on ride-alongs when oh, he was working fun. on the script. But the plane at the beginning, they're like, Trying to land in Vegas, they don't have fuel, and they're down one engine, and so they're not able to make it to the actual Vegas airport, which is actually really close to the Vegas Strip. Yeah, I was going to say, that's kind of weird, because they only have to go like another mile from where they crashed. The airport is right there. (laughs) I'd never been to Vegas when this movie came out, so I had no idea for context how far it was, but now having been to Vegas many times, like, guys, it's literally like two blocks over and then like 10 blocks down. Yeah. Also, there's probably way less busy streets that they could have landed on. I mean, you say that, I guess like they're, they're kind of, their whole thing is that they're running low on fuel and they have to put it down. The strip is a pretty wide street. I'll give them that. Now, back then it was different. Nowadays, you know, it's got all those pedestrian uh, walkways and it's like, it's built over a lot more. It was a lot more open back then. So, I mean, I could see it happening, but you're right. If they can't make it to the airport, the interstate is <laughs> like yeah. half a mile to their right, half a mile, what is it, west from there. But that's like yeah. telling a kaiju not to destroy the Golden Gate Bridge, <laughs> even though there's like five bridges in the Bay Area. It'd be ridiculous. Yeah. Why? Why not go for the most popular? <laughs> so a lot of them were convicts, so they were like, why wouldn't they? Yeah, I mean, yeah, you got to gotta get out with style, right? Maybe the rationale, God, I can't, the rationale behind a bike would be, <laughs> the rationale would be like, they crash land in a really densely populated place. Like if they stop on the highway, there's not many people on foot. If they crash right. onto the strip and get out of the plane, they can blend into a crowd. A lot of credit to Swamp Thing on that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I don't, is this a Michael Bay? No, Jerry this is Jerry Bruckheimer. Bruckheimer. Yeah. Oh, it's Bruck. Oh, are you, did you just blow my mind? I, I just blew it. Con Air is not a Michael Bay movie. It's produced by Jerry Bruckheimer yep. and it's directed by Simon West. Who's Simon West? <laughs> okay, I'm glad I'm not the only one that doesn't know that. <laughs> you may know him from his probably most famous work, the music video for Rick Astley's uh, Never Gonna Give Up. Wow, what, what a legacy. <laughs> Responsible yeah. for Rick rolling the world. And then yeah. he hits us with Con Air. Yeah, he kind of Rick rolled 
the world again with the, this movie. Right, yeah. Talk about a glow up. <laughs> <laughs> so I looked it up. He also directed Lara Croft Tomb Raider, the Angelina Jolie Tomb Raider movie. Yeah, that oh. makes sense. Gus, you might speak more to what you think is possible in the actual scene, but like... So there was a big issue I had here. Just one? <laughs> well, the biggest issue. There's, there's many <laughs> issues I have. But the biggest one is when they finally touch down onto the strip and they're, you know, mm. they're crash landing, quote unquote, and they're rolling down the road. You see like posts hit the wings and rip the wings off of the plane. Like, you know, the plane's still going really fast. The wings get ripped off. It doesn't affect, the plane doesn't turn at all. It's still yeah. just going straight. <laughs> like the second it hits one of those posts on its uh, wing, that plane should be whipping around into whatever building is right there immediately. Interesting. That was the really ill-fated Las Vegas designs of using lightsabers for construction cones they had for a while. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I had another, perhaps issue is the right word for uh, for a scene. Immediately after that, we have, um, you know, some guy holding, uh, Nicholas Cage at gunpoint and you're know, threatening to you know, shoot him so he like doesn't get off the plane. Uh, we have a rotor spinning and like flying off and cutting through the uh, chassis. Yeah. What's, what's the credibility on that, Gus? So, um, little spoiler, we may do an episode of Black Box Down in the future where an incident like this did actually happen. Really? Yes. So it's possible, but most likely especially because they were running low on fuel and they had already been on the ground, the rotor's not spinning at full speed. It most likely would have just embedded itself onto the side of the fuselage where it hit. Makes sense. But I know that scene you're talking about. It's, uh, I believe it's John Malkovich is... Uh, is uh, yes, it is. Nicholas Cage. And that's, a, that's another issue I had. They're both standing there as this, you know, propeller uh, <laughs> flies between them. Rips through, yeah. And they're standing totally fine, despite the fact the plane is... You know, I think at this point, it's hit the water in front of the sands. And, yep. you know, you think if you're standing, that would knock you. You would not be able to stand up at all at this point. Yeah, that was my thing is we've covered a lot of crashes. I don't think anyone dies or gets injured in this. I mean, at least of the of the people in the plane. Uh, except for Danny Trejo. Wasn't his arms still hanging at the end of it? Yeah, he's contractually obligated to die. All the time. <laughs> yes, yeah. every time. But like it was a very like everyone was fine. For the most part. And this was like a pretty crazy crash. Yeah, no, I mean, all they, it's not like they went through any extra safety measures or anything. They just sat down and put their seatbelt on. Although, like we did mention, there was that one crash where it was at the Southern Airways flight where uh, one of the passengers in the back of the plane realized that they were crashing. So he strapped himself in with a bunch of seatbelts and covered himself with a leather jacket and blankets to try to protect himself from fire. And it actually did save him. Mm. But, you know, that's like someone going above and beyond. These guys just literally sat down in their regular seats and put a seatbelt on. Right. Redefines hardened criminals. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> like not even John Malkovich didn't even do that because he was passed out. You know? Oh, right. Right. Yeah. Danny Trejo's yelling at him the whole time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He's like, Cyrus, get up. Wake up. And he's just like sleeping. Well, it's like skydiving. If you go limp, you can survive. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he would have been flung into the wall and busted up. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think we saw any ground deaths either, right? Like we, we see some people running out of the way. I think the closest we get is like the front of the plane hitting um, like a little ticket booth or something. And then it cuts away. But it, it seems like maybe it stopped before it hit the guy trapped inside. Yeah. And this is an R-rated movie. You think they would uh, not have shied away from that? Yeah, gone all all the way on the gore. Yeah, this would have been a horrific accident if uh, if this actually did happen. Because that's there's so many people walking around. They would have just ran so many people over and ex 
yeah, it would have been awful. Especially given the response time of the people that are carrying those bones full of alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> it's not going well when you have a plastic uh, Eiffel Tower that's filled up with daiquiris. You're not noticing yeah. what's going on. <laughs> right. Yeah. You, you, got, you got a daiquiri right in front of you. That's taking all your attention. They did actually, though, crash the plane into the, uh, the casino for, to film this. The Sands Casino. It was going to mm. be bulldozed. Mm-hmm. And so, oh yeah the filmmakers they convince the casino owners like can you not blow it up for like another week or two and then we'll help you blow it up that's right i heard they were going to do something like that with um the dark knight rises too they uh originally i heard that they wanted to use like the old penguins hockey stadium to blow it up mm. in that football scene and then they decided not to but yeah i guess that's not an uncommon thing like are you going to blow something up because we want to blow something up so could you just wait? Heck yeah. I mean, that's a great way to do practical effects, right? Yeah. yeah. But I feel like there was a very brief window in time in the late 90s where Vegas was reinventing itself. And like all the casinos that got imploded were filmed and put into movies. Because, you know, you said the sands happened here. The, uh, the landmark hotel was in Mars right. Attacks. Mm. Oh, that's right. There was another one I can't think of. There was, I think there was one also for... Martin Scorsese's casino, but I can't remember that one off the top of my head right now. Oh, at the very end when they're razzing yeah. all the casinos. Did they really yeah. blow one up in uh, Ocean's Eleven? God, it's been forever since I've seen that movie. I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they blow one up. Yeah, one gets like demolished and that's what, tangent, but yeah, that's what messes up Basher's plan because like they blow one up and like that's the big deal where Lennox Lewis and uh, Klitschko like put the hammer down on it and like blows up one of the hotels. Oh, oh boy. Oh. Am I dating myself that. on this one, too? <laughs> no, no. I've seen it. It's just been a while. Apparently, it was the the Monaco Tower at the Riviera. Mm, nice. That kind of speaks to it, right? It's like there are so many of these that have been imploded over the years as like Vegas redoes itself and reinvents itself that uh, right. it's hard to keep track of them all. They just put Hollywood on speed dial. Hey, we're going to blow something up. You guys uh, <laughs> have a script for this? It helps them subsidize their cost, right? It's like, oh, you guys want to pay $3 million to film this? Great. You know, it's going to... It'll make yeah, exactly. our, our, our demolition cheaper. So, you know, uh, Gus, you mentioned that, like, the, the airport is a mile, uh, what, northwest of them? If that. Uh, where they crashed the plane. Yeah. How, this may be a naive question, you may have answered this already, but uh, how do planes not crash into cities all the time? You know, it, what, what's the response? Has it happened before? Yes. In fact, we covered an episode where a pilot landing in Portland became disoriented well, not disoriented. He became distracted, ran out hmm. of fuel, and uh, crashed into the Portland suburbs. Crazy. Was it Harrison yeah. Ford? <laughs> <laughs> He's got a track record. Uh, there was also that uh, American Airlines episode we did, the one that took off from uh, JFK Airport. Yes. They lost their vertical stabilizer, and they crashed uh, into a neighborhood. Uh, terror. I mean, like we talked about, this crash should have been way worse. When that happens, it's awful. I mean, that's right. yeah. a terrible scenario. Yeah, there have been... What, hundreds of people dead from this? Yeah. Yeah. Surely, right? Uh, well, on that note. <laughs> <laughs> on that cheery note, uh, let's talk about another flight crash. Yeah. Do you want to describe the movie you all brought and kind of set it up and what happened? Because it was not a movie I'd seen. Yeah. Uh, it, it was my first time watching through this one, too. Uh, you know, like, like John mentioned, uh, to give me touch a movie older than I am. <laughs> It's fun. It has a really simple plane crash, but, you know, it's the premise we all know. Uh, you're going on a 
wonderful and lovely and exciting vacation and uh, you crash into the Alaskan wilderness as you do. And then they have to what, survive and that's like the so the crash is the catalyst for the movie. Yeah. So the premise of The Edge itself is uh, Anthony Hopkins is married to a supermodel whose name is Elle McPherson, I think. Yes, it is Elle McPherson. Yeah. And they're there on a photo shoot and Alec Baldwin plays a photographer and mm-hmm. Anthony Hopkins is a billionaire, insanely smart, remembers all these facts. And at some point, Alec Baldwin decides, well, we need to go take pictures of this guy who is in a picture. He's like, well, I need this to look authentic, da 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 da. And Anthony Hopkins is very jealous, but he decides to go along. While they're there, they try to find the person from the photograph that they're looking for to shoot shoes for, whatever the advertisement's for. Yeah. Uh-huh. And he's gone bear hunting. So they need to go from where his cabin was over to a lake that's about 20 miles away. And en route, they run into a flock of birds and crash into a lake and then have to survive, at which point they start getting tracked by a man-eating grizzly bear. And then it's all about their survival. It's written by David Mamet, who is, you know, one of the all-time greatest screenwriters, Glengarry Glenn Ross. And it's... Unfortunately, now that we're following up Con Air, it's a surprisingly accurate crash by comparison. (laughs) (laughs) So what I was able to find out was it was maybe a part of it said it's in 97. So there weren't nearly as many YouTube videos dedicated to pointing out everything that's wrong. There's no cinema sins (laughs) for the edge. But the plane is a de Havilland Canada DHC2 Beaver, which coincidentally is the same one used in Six Days, Seven Nights. Starring Harrison oh. Ford. Oh. Speak of the devil. Ah. Who also owns one and refers to it as his favorite of his private airplanes. He only crashes that one on the weekends. <laughs> <laughs> this one's my favorite. Special occasions. <laughs> I love crashing that plane. <laughs> so this is like a, a single engine uh, plane, right? Yep, this is a propeller, single engine uh, water plane. So it's designed to land in the lakes. Based on the research, it's one of, it it stopped production in 1967, but there's still many that are still in service. It's very highly regarded for its safety. It was basically designed for the Canadian wilderness. So this would be the plane that they would use. I don't want to distract you too much, but I find it interesting that when they did stop making this plane, the model that came after it was the Otter. Yeah, they went from (laughs) Beaver to Otter. Yeah, they have a very uh, (laughs) consistent uh, naming scheme for their planes here. (laughs) So there was one incident that I could find of a plane crash of this particular model. It crashed in real life. It crashed on land and Mm -hmm. everyone survived the initial crash. So it seems to be a fairly well-designed plane as well. And the crash itself during the bird strike Maybe the only questionable section I could think of. You're talking about back in the movie now, though there's a bird. Yeah, strike. sorry, within the movie itself. And this these are birds striking into the plane, not like yes. flying right into <laughs> not, the engine. Yeah. Not not Chris, not Chris, on like they, they don't have a union. They're not picketing <laughs> the plane. Uh, there was uh there's this one small section where they're going from one cabin to the other. The pilot says it's approximately twenty miles away. Top airspeed of the plane is approximately 160 miles per hour. The only thing I could think of is the conversation that exists between Alec Baldwin and Anthony Hopkins, in which point Anthony Hopkins tells Alec Baldwin, I know you're going to try and kill me, mm-hmm. seems to happen mid-flight at altitude. And I just keep thinking at that airspeed, it seems like a really small window for that moment to have happened as they're climbing over the mountains. 
mm-hmm. but that's about as nitpicky as I could possibly go because at that point the bird strikes happen and according to the U.S. like aeronautic statistics, only about 3% of all bird strikes happen en route. Mm. 61% happen during uh, landing phases and 36 happen during takeoff on the runway and climbing. It seems like that makes sense. You know, most of your uh, bird strikes are going to happen, you know, at lower altitudes when they're when birds right. are taking off or landing and you're you know, more likely to encounter them. It's like a plane hitting another plane. Like, what are the odds that this happens? The sky is big. You know, there's three dimensions for everyone to operate in. Right. Exactly. And the only thing I could think of, and they seem to frame that pretty well, too, because it appears that they're trying to pass over a mountain. And that's mm. when the birds are coming up over the mountain at the same time. So the pilot doesn't see it. So it seems like it was pretty well thought out, all things considered. Yeah, and if I remember right, the the birds, you know, strike the engine, which causes the propeller to stop spinning. And they also hit um, the windscreen, and they go in and, like, hit the pilot as well, right? Yep. Yes. I don't know about you, but if I got hit by a Canadian goose at 158 miles an hour, I don't know (laughs) if I'd still be able to fly a plane. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I can say definitively, I would not be able to. Canadians are tough. It's all that poutine. What do you call the part of the plane that lands in the water? The little the like canoe pontoons. Part? Pontoon. Yeah. Yeah. One of those gets knocked off as they like clip a mountain. Right. And so that makes the crap yeah. like the landing on the water really rough. And similar to Con Air, you know, I don't. It's hard to tell because it's a movie. Like, I wonder if that force of impact, the pontoon hitting the mountain, would have caused the plane to start tumbling. Right. Yeah, I couldn't find any statistics to see if it if they had breakaway pontoons, if that's something <laughs> that they're prepared for, but. Yeah, I, I kind of wondered the same thing. But yeah, all things considered, after that, you know, I, I checked out U.S. Coast Guard procedures for escaping a plane, but because there was a hole ripped in the side of the plane, they didn't have to worry about opening doors or anything like that. Even though I did find out that you can open a door underwater. I always thought that you couldn't, but mm. I guess that's because of pressure. If you're right. completely submerged and there's no air left, you can easily open a door underwater. Oh, that's good to know. Learn something new every day. So I got to get that glass breaker out of my car just in case I fall <laughs> through the ice like my mom's been worried about since I was 18 years old. There's a video I've seen online. There's a YouTube channel called Smarter Every Day. Destin, who uh, makes videos for that channel, made a video a year or two ago now, probably got probably two years ago now at this point, where he went to a helicopter school where they part of the training was they train you to unharness yourself from a helicopter that's crashed upside down in water. Oh, uh, really? So like, yeah, they have this giant rig that they strap you into. It, that's like the, the passenger compartment of this helicopter. And then they dunk it into a giant pool upside down. Mm-hmm. And like, it's apparently very difficult to get out of. That's which is why they have this training. Because you're disoriented. You don't know which way to go. Like, you have to go through right. like memorization learning. Like, don't panic. Control your breathing. You know, you're going to unlatch this. You're going to go this way to get out you know, which way is up, like all of that stuff. So like yep. once you're submerged underwater in a cabin like this, it can be really disorienting and uh, and deadly. Yeah, that was, uh, I looked that up too. It was uh, Coast Guard training. I think it was a host of like the Today Show or Good Morning America went to the Coast Guard where they have a similar apparatus where they'll flip boats upside down or fuselages upside down. And their procedure is, one, you have to pick a reference point and you're supposed to pick it before impact because you'd be totally disoriented. So like- grab like near the window, something where you know where you are, where your hand is, where everything is. Then you remove obstacles like the the armrest or whatever that's in your way, then undo your belt, then escape. But something I, I remember too is people will drown after impact because they swim the wrong way. Yeah. Oh, like, so in the movie, it's completely clear water and they're fine. They go straight up. 
but more often right. than not, and supposedly, if you have the frame of mind and air in your lungs, you need to follow your own bubbles. Otherwise, uh. you're just going to keep swimming down until you die. Hmm. Follow the bubbles. Follow, follow the, the bubbles. bubbles. <laughs> not quite strictly related to this crash, but there's another uh, thing I always find fascinating with, uh, with ditching and uh, people trying to escape uh, flooding fuselages. Is you know when you get on a plane and you know they give you the spiel about your seatbelt and your you know your life jackets and all of that stuff, they always tell you wait until you exit the plane to inflate your life jacket. Mm-hmm. And the reason that is is uh, you mm-hmm. know if if you think about it logically, once the plane starts filling up with water, if you need to dive down to get to an exit, that life right. jacket to keep you from diving down. Mm-hmm. And there have been incidents where uh, people have survived ditching in the water only to pass away because they inflated their life jackets before oh. uh, while they're still in the fuselage. So it's like that's like a tiny little thing to remember, but it could say it could be the difference between life and death in an actual situation. That's brutal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Let me tell you, we have fun on this podcast. Uh, we're really here to, <laughs> to talk about the lighter side of things. Uh, if you're like me, you're looking forward to getting back to traveling soon, but you're going to need a comfy, portable pair of wireless headphones to make sure strangers at the airport don't talk to you. You know this is going to happen. So my advice, grab a pair of Raycons. Whether you're listening to podcasts or your favorite music, a pair of Raycon wireless earbuds makes all the difference. You get crisp, powerful beats at half the price of other premium audio brands. Raycons look great. They feel even better. They come in a range of great colors with customizable tips included for a comfortable fit. Raycons are built to go wherever you go with quick, seamless Bluetooth pairing and a compact charging case. They're super discreet, uh, but super great colors. Uh, Long 24-hour battery life. What's not to love? So listen up. Raycons offering 15% off all their products for our listeners. And here's what you got to do to get it. Just go to buyraycon.com slash blackboxdown. That's B-U-Y. R-A-Y-C-O-N dot com slash black box down. There you'll get 15% off your entire Raycon order. It's such a good deal. You want to grab a pair and a spare. That's 15% off at buyraycon.com slash black box down. B-U-Y-R-A-Y-C-O-N dot com slash black box down. Look, I get it. You all listen to shows other than black box down. Admit it, I promise I'm not going to be offended. In fact, I'm so okay with it. I'll even recommend another podcast. If you're looking for an entertaining and informative new show to add to your rotation, you should definitely check out the Jordan Harbinger Show. It's not just any old podcast. Jordan has an undeniable talent for diving deep into the minds of fascinating people and getting them to share never-before-heard stories. You hear from athletes, authors, scientists, mobsters, spies, hostage negotiators. The list goes on and on. He's got episodes with people like Matthew McConaughey, Dennis Rodman, Danny Trejo. Uh, I mean, just such a wide variety of people. Jordan Harbinger is smart, funny, easy to listen to. You'll be pressed to find an episode without excellent conversation, a few laughs, and actionable advice that can directly improve your life. You can't go wrong with the Jordan Harbinger show, uh, adding it to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Just search for the Jordan Harbinger show. That's H-A-R-B-I-N-G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So do we want to talk about uh, our final movie? I think it's time to. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> All right. So I, I hadn't watched Die Hard 2 probably since the 90s. Um, I remember really not liking it uh, when it came out. But, you know, I rewatched it for this and it's not bad. It's not as good as the original Die Hard, but it's not bad. Before we even get to uh, the movie, I just want to say that I actually love the Dulles Airport. I think mm-hmm. that it's got a really cool architecture. That's Dulles, by the way, is where the movie takes place. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think externally it's got a really cool architecture. It's a beautiful airport. And I don't think they have this anymore. But have any of you ever flown out of Dulles by any chance? Or am I the only one? Uh, I have not. I did a long time ago. I think like 87. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> I don't know if you remember this or not, but that, I think they did away with this. But Dulles used to have something they called mobile lounges. 
I've never seen this at any other airport. Like, let's say you're going to your gate to get on your plane, right? Let's say you're mm-hmm. at gate five. You show up yeah. to the gate area and they're like, all right, right through this door. And it's like, you're, you're like in a waiting room waiting to, you know, board the plane. And then the whole room starts moving. I remember those. Yeah, oh. the whole room was a vehicle. It's got yeah. giant wheels under it. And then the whole room just drives over to the plane. And then you get out of that room onto the plane. Oh, my yeah. God. Wow. It's the first class version of the little golf carts. Yes. <laughs> and the first time I got on one of those, I was like, I didn't even realize that we were on a vehicle now. And then you start rolling along, going to the airplane. Uh, I think those are gone now. Anyway, that's my love letter to Dulles and the mobile lounge. <laughs> so right away, 1990, there's a lot of things that are different about airports and about oh, air man. travel in general back then. Uh, like <laughs> airport security is so lax. I mean, the movie even starts with John McLean getting a ticket and getting his car towed because he left it unattended for a long time in front of the airport. <laughs> it's like, I feel like if you left your car unattended in front of an airport these days, you'd have like a black bag over your head and you'd be in Guantanamo like <laughs> by the end of the day. And, uh, you know, he's trying he's trying to like bargain with the, with the the police officer. Like, come on, it's Christmas. You don't have to give me this ticket. And they're like, right. oh, pay 40 bucks and you get it out of impound. And I was like, 40 bucks to get your car out of impound. That's Man. awesome. <laughs> that's, that's like, so, yeah. that's the cost of parking at an airport. Right. right. It's like, oh, yeah, park, parking here costs $40. The movie starts off and, uh, you know, John McClane's got a, he, someone's beeping him, <laughs> which is wild. <laughs> you, know, you kids, like before cell phones, you know, you had a beeper, someone would call and leave a number for you to call him back. So he's like, you know, scrambling to the airport trying to find, uh, he's like, I don't know who's beeping me. I got to call him. He gets to like a huge bank of payphones that are all filled up. Again, remember payphones? <laughs> <laughs> and then he finally gets to a payphone and he's like, all right, who's beeping me? And he calls him back. And he's calling his wife. He's calling Holly Gennaro, who's on a flight, you know, coming into uh, to Dulles. That's why he's there to pick her up. And she has a great line. She says, it's the 90s, remember? Microchips, microwaves, faxes, airphones. You know, she, you know she's on the plane talking to one of those airphones. Right? What a great way to really pigeonhole yourself in your movie to a <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I forgot that was a thing. They had Right. Yeah. And on, on top of that, Chris, the airphone she's using is cordless. There's no, like, what? I, I thought, surely this is a mistake. Because I remember these. They used to be, like, in the middle seat and, like, three mm-hmm. people would share. But, like, you could grab one and make a phone call. A cordless airphones actually did exist. What? Some planes had, like, a bulkhead-mounted phone station with cordless handsets. You could go up to them and the passengers could grab one to make a phone call. And, in fact, later in the movie, you see Thornburg oh, use one of those. Yep. Yeah, mm-hmm. you slide your credit card into. And, yeah. yeah. He's calling down to the television station to report on the crisis, and you see him go over to the, the cordless phone station and grab one. And going back to the fact that John McClane's calling Holly on the plane, ground-to-air calls like this were actually impossible until 1992. Like, you could only call from the air to the ground. There's no way that John McClane would have been able to call her. And on top of that... Holly Gennaro must be loaded because these phones were expensive to use. <laughs> I buy that, though, because she, the company that she worked for and Die Hard 1, I mean, they had that big old building that got blown up. Was the company Nakatomi? Nakatomi, yeah. Were they still... And it was Nakatomi Plaza. Going after that? Did they, they survive? Were, I remember because early in the movie, you see Holly Gennaro in her seat closing up a binder like she's doing work, right, on the plane. And it's a Nakatomi binder. Oh, jeez. I couldn't find the rates for using a, one of these airphones in 1990. These phones stopped service in 2006. And when they stopped in 2006, it was $3.99 to start a phone call and then $4.99 a minute after oh, that. Oh and he God. was complaining about getting his car towed for right. 40 bucks. She just spent at least that. <laughs> right. just paging him. 
I was watching an old episode of Columbo a while back, and William Shatner is showing Columbo his uh, his VCR and his um, home video camera. He said that setup cost him about $3,000 in 1977. Jeez. I think this phone call cost $15,000. <laughs> yeah, before we move on from this scene, there there's one little thing that I noticed that I wanted to point out. Uh, next to Holly, there's an old lady, right? Yeah. And I, I thought it was so strange that this old lady pulls out a taser, taser. when I can't even yeah. bring like knitting needles onto a plane. She has a line, something like, I love technology. And then she shows yep. her. <laughs> yeah. She like crackles it. That lady... Would have been also, she would have been ended up in Guantanamo. The, the black Guantanamo. bag. On, <laughs> yeah, uh, no man. kidding. It's funny. I didn't. Even, I, I remember that scene. I just watched this movie the other day. I, don't, I didn't even write that down. That's hilarious. In the first Die Hard, there's a scene where he's getting off the plane and he's got a gun, and a passenger's like, yeah. looking, and he's like, "Don't worry, I'm a cop." I've been and doing like, this for twelve years. Yeah, <laughs> right. That that is something else we should talk about because uh, shortly after that, you know, we see um, John chasing people down. And he, yeah, he's just been carrying his gun the entire movie. Uh, I think there's like a short line that he says, like, um, you know, the terrorists had like porcelain guns, which is how they got yeah. through security. But that still raises the issue. Like this man, you know, not in uniform, just like carrying a badge in his back pocket that he drops, uh, you know, just walks through security with the gun. What's up with that? It, it's interesting you bring that up. Like they say, it's the Glock 7. It's a porcelain gun made yep. in Germany. Uh, Glocks are actually made in Austria, not Germany. Mm -hmm. uh, Glock mm. 7 is not an actual gun. They might have meant the Glock 17. I'm a bit of a firearms buff. I'm sorry. I don't know if, we've done, <laughs> if we haven't mentioned that before. Um, right off the bat, even if the gun doesn't set off the metal detector, you know what does? Bullets. Bullets. <laughs> are they porcelain bullets? I don't think it's a good good thing to have a porcelain barrel on your gun either, no. is it? If, if you had a porcelain gun and you shot it, even if this thing worked, it would probably shatter and That's hurt what I was, you. Yeah. You might kill the person that you're shooting at, but also yourself. I mean, but I, and I think they, you know, they took a lot of license with this. The Glock does have like some, uh, some compounds, like some ceramic kind of compounds. So, right. it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a bit lighter. It doesn't use only metal. But, I mean, it's still going to show up on a metal detector. It might yeah, just be definitely. a bigger indictment of the strength of metal detectors in 1990. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> well, I mean, this whole thing was ran by a, a private security force too, right? They had um, Dennis Franz, right, is the chief of police. It was never clear whether it was like airport police or what kind of police department it was. Right. It, it didn't strike me as private. It, stri it struck me as like a public airport police uh, division because they had gotcha, their own SWAT gotcha. team. Yes, they did. And before we get too far down that rabbit hole, there is one uh, other thing I wanted to mention here real fast. You you mentioned he, uh, that John McLean had a shootout in like the with the baggage yeah. area. He ends up killing a man with like this rolling device. That that's always bothered me. Yeah, it's like <laughs> there's this conveyor belt for bags, but for no reason there's a portion of the conveyor belt where all the bags need to get squished by a, a, a a roller and yes well and right before that you see it gently go over like right. a rolling bag <laughs> yeah. like, and then what? it kills a man like that man my my luggage when i check luggage is thicker than that man was like <laughs> what would it do to my bag oh absolutely yeah it was it was absolutely crazy uh also i, I don't know enough about the construction of airports but it seems strange to me that all of this routing of baggage was off to the side just through a door. It seemed to me like a lot of this stuff normally is run underground. I don't know specifically how Dulles works, but it, it just seemed out of place to me. 
Right. Yeah, this whole movie just is at the airport the whole time. Yeah. Oh, yes. Buckle yeah, in, dude. I, I've got <laughs> a document here. Before we get to the rest of it, I, I do want to comment. General Esperanza is awful at speaking Spanish. <laughs> uh, yes. I looked it up. Yes, he is. He, he's actually an Italian actor. Oh, oh really? Yeah. It, like, as a Spanish so They were like, speaker, eh, close enough. Yeah, he started talking. I was like... This dude has no idea what he's saying. Like, like he's not. Oh, he's not no. It's like what he's saying <laughs> makes sense, but it sounds like someone who doesn't have a natural Spanish-speaking accent. Like, yeah, someone's like phonetically reading stuff out. Like, okay, this guy, he's Italian. They're like, we just need some ethnic guy. Just put him in there. So then, you know, we spend a lot of time in this movie in the air traffic control tower. And they, you know, there's, uh, there's all these traffic controllers doing all this different stuff. Uh, the whole crux of the movie, of course, is that the terrorists kind of hijack all of the controls from them. But in some of the background chatter, you hear them talking, it sounds believable. Like they're talking yeah. about all this weather moving in and the air traffic controllers are uh, issuing SIGMETs to the planes that are coming in. And I don't know if you remember, Chris, SIGMETs are significant meteorological activity alerts that get uh -huh. broadcast out to planes. So it's like a SIGMET is a real thing. Like I heard one of the air traffic controllers say that. I was like, oh, they actually kind of did their homework for this. For that part. For that one part. Like it's it's not even something that's prominent. It's like you hear someone saying it in the background as like Dennis Franz right. and the airport manager are walking by. It was the extra who was just doing that role. And he's like, this script is bullshit. We gotta do something real. Sigmat! <laughs> Sigmat! All right, we're good. Yeah. Oh, got it. Ooh, nailed it. <laughs> also, this is like speaking of security, this is the worst security for an air traffic control tower ever. Like John McClane just wanders in at one point. Yeah, it's just like an elevator up, right? Yeah. yeah. The reporter comes in. There's, there's <laughs> like, oh, what are you yeah. doing in here? Like, I hit tower in the elevator. You know, <laughs> like they're just everybody's walking in constantly through that throughout this movie. Uh, the the other thing to note is there's a bunch of press in the airport for this scene, uh, which you know they're just kind of like freely wandering about, even up to the the control tower, right? Right. Surely that that didn't happen, right? That that's got to be fake. Oh, there's no way that, that something like that would ever happen. Uh, I, I don't know about 1990. I got to assume they had decent security back then right. as well. But yeah, all the, all the reporters are there because General Esperanza is being extradited, yes. right? He's, he's about to land in this, uh, in this plane. And that's why the terrorists are here. They want to yeah. uh, break him out. And they mentioned, so, you know, the st stuff starts messing up at Dulles. And they mention, you know, oh, well, we can't reroute anyone to National Airport because it's closed because of icing. Mm -hmm. BWI, like Baltimore's right there as well. Like there, there, there's this, the whole movie hinges upon this belief that the planes have to land at Dulles and that there is no other option available to them. Yeah. In reality, yeah. if a plane can't reach the airport, if the plane can't reach tower, they're going to try for a bit, you know, after, but after 15, 20 minutes, they're going to say something's wrong. We need to land somewhere else. There's, you know, you know, there's yeah. that the speech where he's like, all right, stack them and pack them and rack them. The line starts at the Mississippi. It's like, no, it doesn't. Just uh, all these places should be diverting to other airports. There's BWI nearby. If they need to, they can go up, you know, to Boston or New York, figure it or out. The Vegas Strip. It's the Vegas Strip. <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> Pilots would not be up there, you know, worried, running on fumes, trying to land at this destination. You know, this is incredibly dangerous. And speaking of, 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 of things that are incredibly dangerous, at one point, Thornburg, who's like the asshole reporter, is like looking out the window and there are like four planes he can see all right yes. next to each other. It's like, these planes are all way too close. <laughs> you know, there are buffers and there's safe distances that these planes need to be maintaining from each other. And it's like, 
oh, wow, those two planes in the distance are too close to each other, too close to us. And here comes another plane between all of them. Right. And I think you could even see that they're models. If you look closely, you can yeah. see that there's like little plastic under them. They're little model <laughs> planes that someone's just kind of moving along. It's really, really obvious. But it's funny how I never noticed that uh, when I watched it when I was younger. The big question about this movie, right? Like the big scary thing that the terrorists do is they recalibrate the altitude system of the airport. They set it 200 feet down so that planes think that they're, they're still 200 feet in the air when really they're, they're crashing into the ground. And then they crash one of the planes. They crash Windsor 114, uh, which is a DC-8, by the way, uh, just to prove that they're serious. They crash that plane into runway 29, which is not a runway that exists at Dulles. Um, so the big question... Is that possible? I mean, I think as a kid, I was like, holy, you know, holy crap, <laughs> this is so right. dangerous. I can't believe this is possible. So I had to do some digging on this, and I found some interviews with some uh, air traffic control people. A couple of them said that they think this is impossible, but one of them said he thinks it might be possible, but it would require physical access to the ILS system. Like, you'd have to go out to the system and mess with it. Interesting. So, yeah, the way that it's not like, it's a number that's hard-coded into that system. The way that it knows its altitude is through a static pressure system where it's measuring air pressure, basically. And mm -hmm. in Black Box Down, we've talked about static pressure systems before, uh, most notably with pitot tubes for measuring airspeed in planes. This traffic controller who says he thinks it might be possible talks about a story where once a static pressure system on a plane failed because a wasp had built a wasp nest inside of it. Oh, so he no. speculates that if... You could get physical access to an ILS system and you could modify the static pressure system by blocking it or introducing some kind of interference with it that maybe you could recalibrate it, but it's not like opening up a computer and clicking negative 200 and dragging them out. Right, yeah. But they have cordless airphones. Cordless airphones. <laughs> it's the 90s. Microwaves, microchips. <laughs> but even then, even if the ILS system was miscalibrated and set to negative 200 feet, the plane has protections to keep this from happening the ground proximity warning system would start sounding because the plane knows hey the ground the ground's a lot closer than you think it is <laughs> right even if it's on an ils approach it's going to start saying terrain terrain pull up and, and that, right. that's when the pilots be like oh we're we're about to crash so some stuff that's not believable there so uh, I, I mentioned also that that plane crashed into runway 29 all of the runways they mentioned in this movie are not actual runways that exist in real life <laughs> they <laughs> They tell General Esperanza to land on runway 15. Then, you know, they're supposed to land on runway 10. They, Esperanza gets rerouted to runway 25 right. None of those runways exist. These are Fine. not runways at Dulles. <laughs> you, they they you got just Sigmet right, and they couldn't call a 1-800 number? Right, they couldn't. Like, <laughs> they, they's just, they're just wrong. Then as for the Conair connection, Ooh. here it is, Chris. Uh -oh. The plane that Esperanza is on is also a Fairchild C-123 provider. Oh, it's the same kind of plane that gets crashed in uh, in Conair. Nice. So it makes sense that this criminal was being transported in... Oh, look at you. Yeah. This, yeah. I guess in movie world, they were consistent. So speaking of the C-123 provider, uh, there's a scene where the terrorists are throwing grenades at John McClane and he has to pull the ejection seat to yes. escape them. The C-123 provider does not have an ejection seat. It's a low-speed cargo plane. If the crew needs to bail, they just go out the door. <laughs> they just go back to the door and jump out. There's, there's no need for an ejection. It's not a fast plane. It doesn't go particularly high. It's not a big, not a big deal. All right, I just got a couple more things here before uh, I wrap up. There is a scene here at the end of the movie where uh, 
Thornburg's locked himself in the bathroom and they come in and they, they stun him like we talked about earlier. Yes. It is actually possible to open bathroom doors from the outside on a plane. I don't know if you guys know this. There's normally like a little metal plate on the outside of the door that's just like no smoking or something. If you right. lift that up, there's a lever under there and you can unlock really? the door from the outside. Yeah. I now don't officially... Use, that's, not, that's not like one of those <laughs> life hacks that you really right. want to be using. <laughs> I officially have a reason to never try the Mile High Club. Got it. Perfect. <laughs> Honestly. <laughs> if there's an emergency, if there's a child, whatever, if you need to open it, now you know how to actually open it. That makes sense. That makes sense. Last thing I want to say about Die Hard 2, there's that final scene at the end of the movie where their 747's taking off. John McClane uh, opens up the fuel tank and it starts spilling fuel and then he lights it on fire and the fire chases the plane, catches up to it, jumps into the air yes. and uh, causes the plane to explode. Um, as we've talked about many times, um, Jet fuel is not explosive. It would catch fire, but it would not explode. I, it got me curious. I started wondering, how fast is fire? So I looked up. I found someone who did their thesis, their PhD thesis, on the speed of fire on different types of accelerant. And depending on the kind of fuel, I couldn't find specifically jet fuel, but the, at most, the fastest that fire would go on an accelerant like this is 15 miles an hour. So at most, there's no way that this fire could have possibly caught up to the 747, much less jumped into the air and caused it to explode. Yeah. The fastest accelerant I could find was acetylene in air. Uh, behind that was like butane in air, propane in air. Like I've got a, I've got a chart <laughs> of different <laughs> accelerants and their different <laughs> I, speeds. I was wondering what this was. Yeah, this is uh, the speed of different uh, accelerants, uh, a fire on different accelerants. But that's it. That's Die Hard 2. Um, it's a fine movie, but it is incredibly inaccurate with just about everything other than the Sigmet. <laughs> so, and the fact that cordless earphones did exist briefly. <laughs> I guess ranking them then, as far as accuracy, what would it be? I mean... Oh, uh, definitely uh, uh, the Edge number one. Congrats, John. We won. Yay! <laughs> and we only covered the ending of Con Air. Maybe we could revisit some <laughs> of the, the ending of Con Air. I, I would say it's not very accurate, but neither is Die Hard Two. I mean, are you saying that a group of cons couldn't just pull a plane out of the dirt barehanded? <laughs> I disagree. <laughs> but I think Con, at least the scene we talked about, Con Air is more accurate than it sounds like Die Hard. Probably, yeah. Because that that ending explosion <laughs> in Die Hard was incredibly ridiculous. Just the fact that it looked cool. It did look very cool. Yeah. When you land below the Bruckheimer line. You are doing something <laughs> special. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. And don't forget, you can check out our friends. Uh, let them know one more time. Yeah, you can find SCP Archives and Creepy wherever you listen to podcasts. And find Bloody Disgusting's whole podcast network at bloody-disgusting.com. Well, thank you so much. I loved getting into movies and really talking about uh, uh, planes. So thank you so much for indulging me uh, for the last uh, 45 minutes or so. <laughs> yes. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. It was a blast. Thank you. Super yeah. fun. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>